Father God, Lord, we come here today because we do want to praise you. You are the God who never changes. You are constant and have been constant throughout all the ages. And as we come now, we come as people who are thirsty. Not really physically thirsty, but spiritually thirsty, Lord. In need of the refreshment that can only come from you. Father, be with us this afternoon as we think about ideas around the theme of of being thirsty and living water. And bless Alan as he, he takes us through those thoughts. We ask all our prayers in the strong name of, your, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the, the chapter which uh, Alan's going to be um, centering his thoughts on is Isaiah chapter 55. So we're going to read that together and Malcolm Storr is going to read that. Thank you, Malcolm. Good afternoon. Uh, reading from Isaiah chapter 55. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seed for the sower, and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bush will grow the pine tree and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. They will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Some uh, lovely, lovely thoughts in, in that chapter around there, which I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing Alan talking about. So Alan's going to speak to us on the topic of living waters. Thank you, Alan. Right, well, I'm going to start with a story. I hope that's all right. Um, Anne and I have been going to Kenya on CBM work since 1998. And the very first trip we went on, 
uh, flew into Nairobi, we stopped one night in Nairobi and then travelled westwards to the Kenya highlands where the uh, tea is grown to a place called Kericho. And the place we were going to stop was called the Tea Hotel at Kericho. It used to be, uh, it is on the tea estate that used to belong to Lipton's. I didn't know this at the time, but it rains every afternoon in Kericho. 4.30, set your watch by it. We arrived 4.29. So I got out of the vehicle, and the heavens opened, and I dashed to the door and said to the man on the door, the door, door, doorman, what do you call him, porter, as you do, raining again. And he said, it's a gift from God, sir. And there I was on a mission trip. I felt that small. But ever since then, I've read Isaiah 55 in a slightly different light. It's a gift from God, sir. Well, I'm still going to complain about the rain because I live in Wales and that's even wetter than Manchester. But um, let's have a little look at Isaiah 55 and start to to work our way through what the prophet is saying to us. And actually, um, because I'm me, I like to do things backwards. We're going to start towards the end and work back towards the beginning. And I want us to look at verses 10 and 11 first, please. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So, so what the prophet is telling us is uh, that every time we see the rain, we should think about God's word. Hard to do sometimes, especially when you've got an outdoor job, and... Uh, you know, your feet are all squelchy and whatever else. But in what way is the rain like God's word or the other way around? What, what's the similarity? Well, obviously, they both come from God. There's, there's plenty of Bible passages, aren't there, to tell us that the sun shines on the righteous and he sends the rain on the good and the evil. There are plenty of Bible passages that tell Israel in particular that should they turn their backs on God, they can expect all kinds of problems, including drought and starvation that follows. So these are God-given things, the rain and the word of God. They emanate from God. But more than that, they both give blessings. And the blessings that we get from the rain, according to this verse, verse 10, seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, they're not trivialities. They are the essentials of life. And just we know that, don't we? We need the rain to provide those things. We don't have to have a, a, a chicken and egg kind of conversation here about which comes first, the seed or the bread. But it doesn't take much thought for us to, to realise that we need bread now. Give us this day our daily bread. So God provides for now. 
but we need seed to sow, to prepare for the next now, whenever that's going to be. So there's a, a daily provision, an immediate provision, and there's an extension into the future in the things that God provides. And the rain is an essential ingredient of that. And that's true as well, isn't it, about God's word when we think about it. It has an immediacy, a benefit for now, each day. And it is preparing us for the future. So, so we can see some ways in which the, the, the one is an analogy of the other, it's pointing us to the other. So that daily we can be thinking about God's provision and God's love and God's word in the weather conditions that we enjoy. But more often than not would say we have to endure. God provides for us. And these things have a purpose, is what we are told. The purpose of sustaining us, of course. The purpose of preparing us, of course. And part of the purpose, I think, is hinted at in verse 13, isn't it? Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. So, when we think back to what we read about Eden and the curse, in the sweat of thy brow shall they eat of it, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. What Isaiah is saying is there's going to be a change, a reversal of that. And it's God who is going to do it. God in his provision, God in his love, God in the power of his word, which does not fail, is going to do those things. Verse 12, which we missed out, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountain and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Uh, and so, in, in one of the, I suppose, lesser visions that Isaiah has of the kingdom. He's got some much more graphic and glorious ones than that. We've got this little glimpse of a time to come, which will come because of the power of God's word. And the rain and the things that we get from the rain are reminders of that. Let's go back to Kenya again for a moment or two then, shall we? Here we take the rain for granted, we take our food for granted, and we probably don't make much of a connection between the two. If there is a connection, it is simply that it might well be raining when we go to Sainsbury's. But in some countries of the world, there's a vast... Uh, vast is the wrong word. There is a very strong connection between the two. If you live in a country where you eat what you grow, and if you don't grow anything, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, ultimately, you starve. We can think about that in terms of our understanding of the way we handle the scriptures and what we, what we use them for and what we do with them and how much they mean to us. Of course. But I want us to think about our brothers and sisters in Kenya and other countries. Kenya has two wet seasons. One is about March time 
and the other is about October time. Or it should have. And, and it's a great blessing when they both come at the right, when they come at the right time in the right way, because then they can get two harvests. So when the rains come, they plough, they sow, and there's got plenty of sunshine to bring on the crop, the harvest, ready for the harvesting before the next rain come. Wonderful. But if they come too late, there isn't that period for the crop to mature before harvesting. If they come too soon, they will destroy a crop before it has been harvested. If you get too much rain, it'll wash the seedlings away. If you get too little, nothing grows. It's a precarious existence without rain. It's a precarious existence without God's word. We can think of so many ways in which the analogy holds. In verses 8 and 9, Isaiah links the idea of God's word to thoughts and actions. And I want us to think about that, particularly the idea of thoughts which become translated into words which ultimately become actions. Let's, let's see what he's saying there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, obviously what Isaiah is pointing out is, or God through Isaiah is pointing out, is that actually we're different from God. We're not on the same level at all in terms of our thoughts or our ways, the things that we do. So I want to just think about that for a moment or two. In a sense, our thoughts are translated into words. You've got a pretty good idea of what I'm thinking now. I'm thinking about Isaiah. I might have some other thoughts in the back of my mind because I've had a bad week or I'm not looking forward to next week or whatever else. But when we're here, and by and large, we can guess what people are thinking from what they're saying. You might well have an idea about what I'm thinking from the things that I do, generally. But then the more we think about that, the more we realise that because of human nature, we're actually past masters in disguising our real thoughts. Do you like this hat on me? I've chosen the hat because there aren't any wearing them. Do you like this hat on me? Looks lovely, dear. You know? We can disguise our thoughts, can't we? God's not like that. God's open. God's honest. God tells it like it is. And maybe we don't like hearing what we hear, but God is different from us. We are very good at hiding what we really mean. I think, if you'd like to put a bookmark in Isaiah 55, because we're going to come back, I think that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, in this little passage that I think is quite often misused, misunderstood. Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about swearing or of taking of oaths. 
Swear not, verse, verse 34, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because... But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And quite obviously the Lord is not saying that our vocabulary should consist of two words only and that they should both be monosyllabic. He's not saying that at all. And we can go into all kinds of studies about the way in which there were ritual words that you could use so that if you actually said them, you know, you were absolved from the commitment you were making. But like when we were kids, I don't know whether they still do it now, you know, you could promise to do something, but if you had your fingers behind your back crossed, nobody could see that and it, it didn't matter, the promise didn't hold. So what is Jesus saying? I think he is saying that we have to mean what we say and say what we mean. We don't always do that, do we? Mean what we say and say what we mean. We don't often do that. God is not like that. God is different from us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, naturally. And yet we are encouraged, exhorted, perhaps commanded, to strive to work to that ideal. And there is actually an incentive. Can we go to Revelation chapter 14, please? There is quite a strong incentive to do it. I'm not going to... Well, I haven't got the capability anyway of expounding Revelation 14, but I just want to pick out one verse because it fits in with what we're saying. In this picture, chapter 14, of the Lamb sitting on Mount Zion, those around him having the Father's name written in their foreheads. And look what verse 5 says. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. In their mouth was found no guile. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. When you say yes, let it mean yes. When you say no, let it mean no. And then there should not be misunderstandings or worse. So, if we go back to Isaiah, we've looked at verses 8 and 9, and the contrast between God's ways and our ways. Let's move back up the page a little bit to verse 7 then. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So we've got to. Ah, uh, no, it's no good saying, well, the wicked is somebody else. We've got to. We've got to look at the way we think, as well as the way we present ourselves to others. We've got to try and purge out those 
unworthy thoughts, whatever they might be, so that we are moving closer to the ideal that God would have. And we remember, of course, that our thoughts generally can be translated into words. And if they're wrong thoughts, they're going to be wrong words. And can be translated into actions. And if they're wrong thoughts, they'll be wrong actions. So, so there is a commandment now. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and return to the Lord. And then that's a lovely bit then that comes at the end of the verse, isn't it? And he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Or as the margin says, if you have one, he will multiply to pardon. It's a way of saying in very few words that God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness is big enough to cope whatever the problem is that you bring to him. It's big enough to cope with that, what he has done for us in the giving of the Lord Jesus. It is big enough. What an amazing idea that is. One of the passages I use very often in Kenya is Romans chapter 5. Keep your marker in Isaiah, please. I use it because I think the point comes across very, very easily in whatever language you use. And this point is as clear in Kiswahili, which is the common language there, as it is in English. I'm using an AV here. I don't know what other translations of the Bible into English use. But the expression, much more, occurs at least five times in Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to highlight them for you, and uh, we're not going to expound the rest of the chapter. Verse 8 is, God commends his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified. Verse 9. If, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, verse 15, not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is wrought by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded to many. Verse 17, if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace. And then verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you see what the Apostle is saying, it's, it's the same point as, as, I, as Isaiah has made for us. God will multiply to pardon. And it doesn't matter, says Paul, what the problem is that you're bringing to God, God is big enough to handle it, to deal with it and to cover it. Much more. He then goes on to deal with human nature, because he said, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if God's got all this grace, we can do whatever we like. Because God's grace is much more than all our ill deeds. Shall we do that? 
by no means, God forbid, verse 2 of chapter 6. That's not the way we should be thinking. We should know that God's grace and God's love, God's pardon is big enough for everything. But, Isaiah says, as Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then, God will multiply to pardon. God will abundantly pardon. That's God's way, isn't it? Back in Isaiah, for a moment or two, because we are thinking about God's provision and the power of God's word and the certainty of it. And verse 3 talks about the sure mercies of David. Things that are certain. We're going to come back to that idea, and that verse rather, in a minute or two. Just want us to think about the certainty of God's word. And there's a lovely little example in First Samuel chapter 3. Again, let's just look there, because these verses that we can just pick out, without worrying too much about the story, I think fit into our theme and, and perhaps make us think about the, the stories that they come from in a different light and with a little bit more vigour sometimes. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, we're in a time when Eli was the priest and it wasn't a good time. Verse 1, Charles Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli and the word of the Lord was precious, uh, I think other versions say rare in those days there was no open vision so the word of God wasn't coming to people not that God had forgotten or needed a kind of a break perhaps there was no channel because of the way that Eli was behaving perhaps there was no willingness to accept the word and perhaps when it was there, it wasn't talked about. It was pretty rare. Nobody wanted to know. But then Samuel came along, and suddenly things were transformed. Verse 19, Samuel grew, and the Lord is with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. So, so those words that came through Samuel to the people, none of them, none of them failed. Every one of them was used and was powerful. And the reason we know it was powerful, apart from the fact that it came from God, was something we're reading verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. There's going to be no stopping it, says God. Once I start, there will be no stopping it. No power on earth will prevent God's purpose. And when we think about that, in our own lives, and in the things that we are looking for and forward to, and that little glimpse we get in those last couple of verses of Isaiah 55. 
What a tremendous comfort I think that is. When I begin, I won't stop. When God sets about the establishment of his kingdom, there will be no stopping it. That's what Samuel is telling us, indirectly. And that's what we've got here in verse 3, isn't it, of Isaiah 55. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. It'll go on and on forever. It is certain. There is no doubt about it. So let's go back then to Isaiah 55, please, and look at this wonderful invitation that God gives here in the first two verses. To everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. He that hath no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Don't spend your money for that which is not bread. Don't work for that which satisfieth not. I know you know I'm paraphrasing here. Hearken diligently unto me. God's words again, you see. Hearken diligently unto me. And eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. So without any doubt, uh, as we said in our opening prayer, without any doubt, these things that we are talking about, the, the living waters, the, the, the natural bread, these are things that are making us think about God's provision, God's word, and God's love. Verse 4, Behold, I have given him, who? David? I think not. A witness to the people. A leader and commander to the people. And you notice in the next verse, the pronoun changes, it's not him. Behold, you shall call a nation that knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee, because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. I think it's an amazing chapter, chapter 55, that takes us in so many different directions. And I can't help but think about Kenya when I read it. But I'm going to let another prophet have the final word in this first half. It's that neglected, perhaps misunderstood prophet, Jeremiah. And I'd like you to turn, please, to chapter 17. This is at a time, as I'm sure you know, when the inhabitants of Jerusalem in particular, but Judah in general, had turned away from God in a very, to a very significant extent. They wanted nothing to do with God's word, with God's provision, with God's daily care, and they began to challenge. Not just God, of course, but Jeremiah, the prophet whom God had sent. And so, in verse 15 of chapter 17, they said, Behold, they say unto me, I'm sorry, this is Jeremiah saying, Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. And, and on a straightforward level, what they were saying was, Come on, Jeremiah, let's have a prophecy from you. 
Let, 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 let's see what's going to happen. What, you know, let's see that God is really with you. But it's more than that, wasn't it? We're talking about a time of judgment here. Babylon wasn't far away in terms of the conquest. There were all kinds of machinations going on as to whether Egypt would come to save Jerusalem rather than have the Babylonian armies on their own doorstep. God's judgment won't come to us. We're the chosen people. Where is the judgment? We're safe here. And what did Jeremiah have to say? This is part of his prayer. This is an expression of his awareness of how wrong the people were. Verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What a fantastic expression that is. One of the things I haven't said about this is that in Jerusalem there was that constant, permanent reminder of living waters from the Gihon Spring that came down and sustained the city. And even in the direst of times, God provided living water for the people. There was a constant reminder and yet they could make these challenges and forsake the one who had provided, the one who was the fountain of living waters. We're in similar danger, I suspect, with our constant reminders of God's love and God's care, how easy it is for the world's cares to, 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 to make us forget. Interesting picture, isn't it, in verse 13? written in the earth. And I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind. Do you remember when that woman taken in adultery was brought to him? And he stooped down and wrote in the earth. We're not told what he wrote. What we are told is that the accusers departed from him, starting from the oldest to the youngest. So my guess is that the Lord knew every one of those accusers and wrote their names one by one, starting at the oldest, into the dust of the earth. And when they saw their name, they knew what he was getting at. And they didn't like it. Because their names were written in the earth, having forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Let's just read verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, which brings us back, more or less, to where we started. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. I'm sure you know that that's taken pretty well from Psalm 1. There's God's blessing again. The power of living waters to sustain through the hardest of times. And so, when it rains, let's think of God's provision. For now, bread to the eater. For the future, 
seed to the sower. Let us be grateful for what God has provided. Let us remember the power of his word and seek to emulate his ways, his words, his thoughts. Thank you.